dear friends and fellow travelers to eternity, we appreciate so much your allowing this assembly to come together for the high purpose that calls us together of worshiping our loving Heavenly Father and of engaging in the advancement of the cause of Christ among men. I, too, have a lot that I want to share with Tony through the week. I'm so glad we can spend this time together. He is a continual source of encouragement as I think about his labor of love here with you at Bobby Branch. Thank you for having me for the meeting. I had wanted my wife to be with me today, but last weekend my father, who's turned 87 Friday, fell and broke a hip. So we were in the hospital in Little Rock. We stayed by his side the whole time. It was great fun, you know, staying in the room. I had a like a little four-inch mattress on the ground that was about six inches wide, and I'm slightly wider than that. And I had nightmares that I was rolling off the bed. But, but Dad's now in rehab down in Fordyce, Arkansas, where he's from, and Sheila is with him, but she wanted to be here. And it will do Dad and does Dad a lot more good for me to be here with you in this way than to be by his side. So we appreciate the privilege we have to get to be with you and, and uh we um, hope Dad will improve. In our lesson today, you heard the lesson text read from the book of Amos, chapter 4 and verse 12. And I'd like for us to get in just a little bit to the background of Amos that caused Amos to make the statement that he does when he tells Israel, prepare to meet thy God. There's indeed a preparation that they needed to make. And as I think about this gospel meeting, that's not a bad theme for a gospel meeting. Prepare to meet thy God. Because those with any powers of observation at all are able to look at our society and see there is very little preparation being made to meet our God on a large scale. So just think about Amos with me, with you, if you will, for a minute. Amos is a common man. He is a herdman from Tekoa. Now, Tekoa is a little area that is pretty much dry ground. It is situated 2,700 feet above sea level situated 12 miles south of Jerusalem and 6 miles south of Bethlehem. From Tekoa, a person could look over the abyss of the Dead Sea and see that great distance from that height. And Amos's job was, as a herdman was to take care of some ugly sheep known as, as Noked. They were ugly sheep, but they produced beautiful wool. Also, he is known as a gatherer of sycamore fruit. Now, he wouldn't have those trees and ability to do that there at Tekoa. He'd probably go to the coastal plains or down in the Jordan Valley to do that. And the sycamore fruit of that region was such that it required a piercing of the fruit in order to enable it to ripen. So that's the way Amos is spending his days, and I just wanted to mention that. But then he receives a call of God, a call not to go into Judah and to talk to Uzziah the king there, but to go north into Samaria, into the northern kingdom of Israel, and to talk to Jeroboam II, and to let him know God's message of judgment. Now the situation in Israel at this time was Israel had regained some of the losses from wars, and they were in pretty good shape financially. In fact, you might say these people were in a state of luxury and grand luxury. They were lying on beds of ivory. They were drinking wine in bowls. Their women in chapter 4, verse 1, are called kind of Bashan. Uh, the word kind means cow. And here these women were laying around like fatted calves, living in lavish luxury and demanding a high standard of living that caused their husbands to go out and practice greed and have an unfair balance to sustain that kind of lifestyle. 
One commentator in looking at Amos 4.1 says, The women were saying, Honey, mix me another drink. Oh, it was a lavish lifestyle that they lived. Now, it was very difficult for a people with that mindset and experiencing those blessings to think that they could in any way be in any danger or any harm. They saw themselves as receiving the benefit of all of God's favor. So they had spurned and rejected the message of God's prophets to them from Israel, urging them to repent of their sins, their idolatrous worship practices, their self-focused society. Well, now these people were not adverse to religion. They were a very religious people. The only problem was that their religion only took an outward form. You wouldn't see them really, really living a godly life. As a result of this and the punishments that God had done, various famines and things leading up to Amos' appearance before Jeroboam II, they are not listening to the message of God. They have no interest in the things of God. They just want to lie on their beds of ivory and drink their wine out of bowls and have their own way about everything. In fact, when Amos goes up there to speak to Jeroboam, in chapter 4, we learn, rather in chapter 7, we learn that Amaziah, who is a priest at Bethel, Amaziah finds out Amos's message and he tells Jeroboam that Amos is speaking about you in negative fashion. And he's saying that we need to do some repenting. And so Amaziah, the priest, the false priest, is telling Amos, what you need to do, Amos, is just go on back down there to where you're from in Judah. It reminds me of a third cousin of mine, his first name is Jimmy, who's drinking himself into oblivion. And my dad thought he'd stop by and see Jimmy, and everybody's concerned about Jimmy. They know he is the resident alcoholic of the little town, one of those guys that drives a pickup truck and drinks a beer can and has the ability to toss it out of the truck right into the back of the pickup. Dad goes by to talk to him, and he says, Jimmy, I'm real concerned about your lifestyle. I think you're headed to the blazes of hell, and you don't repent. And Jimmy said, now, Uncle Buddy, I mind my own business, and I want you to mind your own business. I'll take care of my business, and you take care of your business. Well, somebody had to take care of his business because when he died, he couldn't bury himself, and they had to take him down to the funeral home and put him in the grave. Somebody else had to take care of Jimmy's business. Now, he drank himself into there, but he violated his cardinal philosophy and principle of life to mind his own business when he died because others had to bury my cousin. Well, that was the way it was up there in Israel. You get on back down there to Judah and mind your own business. Amos is a man from the country, and he was a straight talker, a plain talker. They would not need someone afterward to discuss the points of his oratory. They would know exactly what he's talking about when he gets there. The book of Amos is very interesting because in the first chapter of it, Amos begins by talking about the sins of the nations around Israel. And they're very happy to see that. Oh, yeah, we live around some wicked people, that's for sure. Oh, yes, those guys need to repent. There's no doubt about it. And then when Amos turns his attention toward their sins, they start singing a new tune. What were they doing? Well, they didn't think a lot about the things of God. They would sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. These people would turn evil to good and good to evil, chapter 5. They had no interest 
in uh, their relationship to God in an honest and upright way. As I think about Israel, this, the year is 750, approximately 750 B.C. As I said, during the reigns of Uzziah in the south and Jeroboam the second there in Samaria in the north, I think about the parallels to ancient Israel and how relevant the Bible is to our own times. Because what I see people doing in America today is trusting in our great riches. It is amazing to me that a country like ours can be rapidly approaching 17 trillion dollars in debt and still handing out money like it's just coming off printed presses. Handing out your children, grandchildren, now guess what? Your great-grandchildren's money. Handing that out to somebody else like over in Syria today saying let's give you some money, let's give you some aid over here so you can take care of your problem and hand them your great-grandchildren's money. Thank you very much. They'll take that and do with it what they can. We have no sympathy for those who are causing problems in Syria and 60,000 people having died. Do you know that the number of our young people who died in Vietnam was 58,500 approximately over a 10-year period? And in Syria over the last 12 months there have been 60,000 people die? Oh, we need to do something. But giving them money we don't have, is that really the answer? Well, we find a lot of trust today in riches that we don't have living in an overextended fashion. That was the way of ancient Israel. That's the way of modern America. I think it goes to a question that we preachers constantly discuss, and that is, why is there not heightened interest in the things of God today? I'll tell you why. Because people have so much entertainment they can't keep track of it all. They have so much money and access to money they can buy virtually anything that they want. What do they need God for? On one occasion, we had the opportunity to start a congregation in a housing project. Did you know what those people would do? They would study the Bible with you. I suppose every Bible correspondence course that our brethren have published, I utilized in teaching those people. We would meet with them weekly, and there would be 15 to 20 people in a weekly Bible study from that community. Well, it wasn't that they didn't have anything else to do. That sure was part of it, living out where they did. But it was because... They saw life from a different perspective than most. They didn't have anything. And they began to look to God. America needs to learn that lesson. Israel refused to learn it. Let's take notice of how God expects people to live. And preparations. When we talk about prepare to meet thy God, what does that really mean? What does the Bible say about that? If you have a copy of your Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. What I'd like to do is read three or four passages of Scripture from the Bible that really set the expectations God has for His people. Two of these passages of Scripture I'd like to look at were the famous passages, favorite passages, I should say, of two former presidents. So you'll already be well acquainted with them. And you're probably acquainted with the others as well. Here in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, Moses said, And now Israel... What doth the Lord require of thee? That's what we want to know. What does God require of us? If we have some preparation to make, we're ready to make that preparation. What is the preparation that God has and expects of us? Here's what the Lord requires of Israel. But to fear the Lord thy God, and to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, 
which I command thee this day for thy good. Now that's spelled out pretty directly, isn't it? I think a person, you know, first, second, third grader, be able to understand what God requires of people. And you see it broken down in that fashion. Well, the second passage I want to notice with you, this is in the same connection. It will be in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 in verse 14. 2 Chronicles chapter 7 in verse 14. Again, to people in antiquity, God said, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. The third passage is in Micah. Micah chapter 6 in verse 8. As I stated, these, that one and this one were favorite passages of former presidents. Here in Micah 6 in verse 8, Micah writes, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee? That's our question. If we're going to prepare what is required, what does the Lord require of thee? But to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. The last passage under this heading I'd like to note with you is in the book of James over in the New Testament. James chapter 1, verse 22. James wrote, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in the glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed, in his deeds. God certainly does have requirements of us, and expects us to live up to those requirements. You'll notice that it's not an off-again, on-again thing. I heard Brad Harib refer to CEO Christians. And you listen, what is a CEO Christian? And he explains, a CEO Christian, they are in the services of the church Christmas and Easter only. CEO Christians. There are a lot of CEO Christians. There are a lot of people today who think they live in an acceptable position before God. They think that the Lord has saved them, and now then, they're on their own. They can do whatever they want. Not having read Matthew chapter 25, verse 30, but cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. God expects his people to love him and to serve him and to obey him with all of their heart and to walk humbly before his God. Now noting some of those requirements that God has of us in a general way, let's just drop back for a minute and take notice of the idea that some have, that if a person is a Christian, well, that's fine. He's got his ticket punched. Some among the denominations refer to it as once saved, always saved. Some in the Lord's church don't teach that, but practice it as their life would bear out. I want to note with us our need to make preparation. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9.27, For it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. We are headed to the judgment. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. We persuade men. 
2 Corinthians 5, verses 10 and 11. Some say that once a person is a child of God, then he is going to be saved no matter what. He's a child of God. Once a child of God, always a child of God. I want you to notice something as we consider that thought. In the book of Hebrews in chapter 3, the whole book of Hebrews really is designed to this particular point. But here in chapter 3, there is the admonition for these Christians to remain faithful and not to go back in the world. Why do you think a lesson like this is important? I think so because every place that I have ever been, including three years in southern Spain, especially among American servicemen, there have been more Christians unfaithful than faithful. I read some years ago in one of those books we use at Fried Hardeman that Cecil Wright had us to look at in there and, and go through, uh, Haley's um, Bible Handbook. And uh, you just go through and comment on it. Brother, Brother Wright, instead of reading your paper, he would just weigh it. If, if you did a lot of work, A plus. That's why he's got a D minus. <laughs> That's the way he would do. In the back of that book, Haley observes that if in most communities... If all of those who claim the Lord Jesus Christ and name his name were to assemble with the church, the church would be overflowing. I've never seen that principle violated. There are more unfaithful people in most places than there are faithful people. That's why I'm giving us the encouragement today to notice our responsibility because we want to prepare to meet our God. We have an appointment that we're going to make with death and then we have an appointment at the judgment. Those are sure things. The writer of Hebrews is encouraging these Jewish Christians not to return to Judaism. In chapter 3, for example, in verse 8, he says, Harden not your hearts, as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. Don't, don't harden your heart. Also, looking down in verse 12, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief, is it possible for an evil heart of unbelief to develop in us? Sure, else Paul's wasting his time talking about it. Notice verse 13. But exhort one another while it is called today, uh, daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And then here's the desire. Here's the goal. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. And then he quotes, harden not your heart again. I think we need to drop back for a minute and spend a couple of minutes on this particular point. The possibility of apostasy. Now since some have said, once a child of God, always a child of God, let's go back to the Garden of Eden. Let's take notice of Adam and Eve back there. Adam came into this world, not as you and I did, and in the long history of men through the process of human reproduction. But he came at the immediate creative power of God Almighty, formed out of the dust of the ground. The Lord God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living soul. There was no one, except for our Lord Jesus Christ, who ever enjoyed such close fellowship and communion with God than did Adam and his wife Eve. And that is why when Adam sins by transgressing God's law, Genesis 3, 3, that when people that read and study the Bible talk about that, they call it 
the fall of man. Was Adam a son of God? Oh, yes. Did he enjoy fellowship with God? Clearly. But when he violated the command in Genesis 2, 17 and 18 and transgressed God's law, Paul comments on it in Romans 5, 12. For by one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death had passed upon all men. Adam in his sin opened sin, opened death to all men by his actions. Even our children will remember that God drove them out of the garden, lest they should eat of the tree of life and live forever, and set a flaming sword that turned every way in case they tried to re-enter the garden. Oh yes, a person can be a child of God. Adam's called a son of God in Luke 3, 38. But he was in a fallen condition. And unless he made preparation, he's not going to be right in the sight of God. I think that there is information in Genesis chapter 3 that would indicate that he did. But I want you to notice the possibility of his apostasy. Now notice, turn with me if you will in your thoughts down some years later to the period of the United Kingdom. Under its first king, King Saul. God gave them a king in his anger and took him away in his wrath. King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 10, please note his relationship to God. This is 1 Samuel chapter 10. I want to notice verse 1 and verse 9 with you if we could. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, in verse 1, Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it upon his head and kissed him and said, it, Is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee to be captain over his inheritance? Look in verse 9. And it was so that when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, God gave him another heart, and those signs came to pass that day. Now, there's a lot of discussion today. A lot of people think that if they have the Spirit of God, they're saved and in a right relationship with God. The Bible says if a man has not the Spirit of God, he's none of his. Romans 8, verse 9 and verse 14. But you'll notice what is said here in verse 10. When they came hither to the hill, behold, a company of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied unto them. So we're establishing then in reading 1 Samuel chapter 10 that Saul was the Lord's anointed to be the first king over the United Kingdom of Israel. And we notice that the Lord gave him another heart and that the Spirit of God came upon him. Is it possible for a person like that to err from his intentions and to ultimately and finally be lost? Well, yes, it is. And the reason I wanted to go to Saul is because you see it borne out on the pages that follow. Over the next five chapters, you will see Saul, King Saul, Turn his thoughts away from God. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, he's wanting to take back spoil from the destruction of the Amalekites when God told him utterly destroy them. You remember that? Well, upon being impressed with that by Samuel's comments to him, in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 24, Saul said, I have sinned. And that marks a turning point in that man's life. Where here he is in a position of responsibility, here he is in a favored position, but yet he turns away from God having sinned. Pray ye to the Lord for me. But yet he goes right on sinning. So that by the time in Samuel, when we get to 1 Samuel chapter 28 and verse 16, and this is after the death of Samuel, and yet Samuel is talking to him. It's curious, isn't it? How does that happen? You might want to read 1 Samuel 28 sometime. In verse 16, Samuel says to Saul, Wherefore then dost thou ask of me, seeing the Lord is departed from thee, and become thine enemy? All right, we've seen that Adam, a son of God, 
could so sin that his sin is described by all who notice anything about that whatsoever, refer to it as the fall of man. We've seen here in Saul a man who had the Spirit of God upon him and a new heart within him, and yet he sinned, 1 Samuel 15, 24, and God had turned from him and become his enemy. The reason is he wouldn't repent. But I just want you to notice his state. There's another example for us over in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 32, where the prophet Jeremiah, in speaking to wayward Judah, urges them to return to God. And he says, Can a bride forget her ornaments or a maid her attire? Well, the answer to that question is no. The bride never forgets her. You know, the, the photographers, they make their living taking pictures of that. She'll always remember it, but she wants pictures of it too. I don't like to see pictures of mine because I'd never fit in that same suit again, and it makes me sad. But she's never going to forget that. She'll always remember how she looked. But then Jeremiah says, from God's perspective, yet you've forgotten me. Days without end. And because they wouldn't turn back to God. You'll notice later in Jeremiah, this is Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 39 and 40. Jeremiah makes a statement to them that I want you to notice with me just now. This is chapter 23, verse 39. Therefore, behold, I, even I, will utterly... Forget you, and I will forsake you, and the city that I gave you, and your fathers, and cast you out of my presence. And I will bring in an everlasting reproach upon you, and a perpetual shame, which shall not be forgotten. See, there are consequences to people's activity. When God is just, you know, something that's, can, He can be there when you want Him. You just call on Him. You can go worship Him if you, if you just feel up to it. Christmas and Easter are great times, they say. And a person can live for himself all of the time. And there be sin in his life and not repent of that sin. Guess what? God will forget you. You notice how? Utterly. That word utterly is a word indicative of extremes. Not forgetting like, oh, there's something I want to say and forgot about it. No. Utterly. It means absolutely. It has to do with finality. God will forget those who do not prepare to meet him. A couple of more verses, and I think we'll, we'll have cleared this point up pretty well. In the book of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 18, you remember down there in verse 26, here as well as in chapter 33, verse 18, in the interest of time, I'll give you the verses and you can look them up. Ezekiel is saying, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness, all that God blessed him is no longer his. When a wicked man turns from his wicked way and turns toward God, all that God said regarding his punishment will no longer be his fate. If a righteous man turns from his righteousness and goes back, God's not going to bless him. Ezekiel 18, 26 and 33 in verse 18. We've shown you those passages because we have preparation to make. And it is possible for us to fall. And that preparation is involved in doing exactly what you're doing today. Being in worship to God. Allowing our thoughts to run to his word. And to hear what God has to say. How important it is for us to live for God every day and to make those preparations. You know, we talk about the temptation of our youth. And I think there is unanimity of agreement that our youth today have more temptation before them than at any age in our history. Sin is so accessible on every front. 
And I think along with that kind of temptation, we adults also need to realize that there is the ever-present temptation before us on every front to forsake God, to focus on our own interests instead of the things of God. When Amos is writing in Amos chapter 4, verse 12, Because you won't listen, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. They could have listened to the advantage the prophet brought, but they chose not to. So now then, you will meet God. You do have an appointment with God. What happens, the end of the story is, in 733 B.C., the king decides that he is going to seek an alliance with Damascus as over against Judah in the southern kingdom. You read about that also in Isaiah, the seventh chapter, Reason and Pekin. And what happens is King Ben-Hadad of Assyria comes down and takes the northern part of Israel right off their land, 2 Kings 15, 26. By the year 722, the capital city of Samaria falls. This is hardly a generation from the time of Amos. That's why I want to give you these dates and this perspective. How soon could something like that happen? Israel was unconvinced that they could ever enjoy anything but the lap of luxury. And within a generation, they are being carried away into Assyria. And I have not the vocabulary to describe to you the horrors of being subject to a man like Tiglath-Pileser III. He would be on a par with Saddam Hussein, Adolf Hitler, you name him. He's right there with them. And his mighty army comes down with one sweeping move and moves the northern segment all the way out, never ever to return again. Oh, had they listened to Amos, who urged them to make preparations, but they would not hear. In regard to us, we have a confidence in salvation. Hebrews 4, 13 and 14. And we want to hold that confidence firm to the end by making the preparation in a generic way mentally that we are going to fear God, we will love God, we will serve God, we will keep His commandments and His statutes, and we will walk humbly before God. If those things are of attention, of interest to us, if they are a part of our character, then as students of the Word of God and followers of Christ, simple disciples, Acts 11.26, we will be retaining that confidence that we need. In the judgment when all are assembled before that grand scene described for us in the Bible in so picturesque a way, judgment begins at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, where shall the sinner and the ungodly appear? 1 Peter 4 and 17. Our salvation is conditioned upon that if we remain steadfast to the end, Hebrews 4.13. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2. It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after they had known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them, 2 Peter 2 and 20. Our admonition today in this lesson is to encourage you to realize that every day we live, we're preparing to meet our God. With so many with closed ears and hard hearts around us, we need to stay in tune to the Word of God and humbly submissive to His will. In bringing our lesson to a conclusion, the Apostle Peter stood before the multitude 
who were immediately and directly responsible for the death of Christ. And he told them to do some things that if you and I do them, we will be in the state those people were in when they did what he said. He says in Acts 2.22, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. He preached Christ unto them. He showed how that Jesus came in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, that he died on the cross, was buried, and rose again the third day. as an element of prophecy. For example, Psalm 16.10. He urged them, as they cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? To repent, Acts 2 and 38. Also, the Bible tells us upon their belief, in Acts chapter 16, verse 21, what shall I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. So they were to hear the word. They were to believe that message, Acts 16, 21, or 31 to 33. They were to repent of sins, Acts 2, 38. And then the Bible teaches that they confessed their faith in Christ. There was a man who wanted to be baptized. He'd heard about that. He'd been hearing about that from Acts 8, 26, as Philip preached unto him Jesus. And he said, see, here's, a, here's water. What hinders me to be baptized? And Philip said, if you believe, you may. God knew that he believed. Philip did not know that he believed. It is with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and it is with the mouth that confession is made unto salvation, Romans 10, 9. And the eunuch said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You're making a statement, a confession. We sometimes refer to it as a profession of faith because it's the profession that we are now involved in so long as we live, heaven being our home. And then Peter told them, Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Acts 2 and 38. Those who gladly received his word were baptized. So what did they do? They heard the word of God. They believed it. They repented of their sins and confessed faith in Christ. They were baptized for the remission of sins. In order to be saved, they were baptized. Mark 16, 16. Those who gladly received the word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them, the apostles, about 3,000 souls. Do you know that these folks were praising God and having favor with all the people? And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Acts 2.47. That's exactly what the Lord will do with us when we obey that same gospel. Because Jesus intended that gospel to last to all ages. Lo, I'm with you all the way, even to the end of the world. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 20. That gospel is to be preached for all times. The everlasting gospel, Revelation 14 and verse 6 tells us. That's the gospel you can obey today. That's how you walk humbly before God. That's how you submit to the ordinances and commandments of God. That's how you show you love Him and fear Him, is by doing what He has said. The church into which He will place you is the one He purchased Himself with His own blood, Ephesians 5, 23. It's the one over which He serves as head, Colossians 2 and 19. It is the saved body today, again, Ephesians 5, 23 to 25. If you're not a member of that blood-bought body, the Church of Christ, we want to encourage you to obey the gospel today. I'll think about 15 things that we can do later and maybe some point on. I'll tend to my business. You tend to your business. You go on back down there and hang around them ugly sheep and get that beautiful wool off of them for us to dress up in. But today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6, 2. Won't you obey the gospel today if you're outside of Christ? If you're a child of God and need to do as others have already this week recently, been restored to their Lord through repentance and prayer, Acts 8, 20 to 23.
Why don't you take advantage of that and prepare? We all want to prepare to meet our God while we stand and while we sing.